Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast. We talk about the things that set our autonomic nervous system into sympathetic mode, the infamous fight or flight mode. Typically, we talk about physical dangers or psychological stress, but there's a third category, and that is physiological stress, things going on in our body that trigger our autonomic nervous system to kick into sympathetic. So, Doc, we're excited to have you unpack this third category of autonomic stress. Yes, I'm excited and actually have two family members joining me who are experts in their field. And they've actually taught me a lot along the way. You'd be amazed how many of the different things that we address in Royer Neuroscience and Inner Armor that really come out of my interaction with Amy, who's going to be joining us today, who is a functional nutrition nurse, an RN of close to 30 years. And Amy is also my business partner in Royer Neuroscience. And we've spent a lot of time looking at brains, studying elite athletes, also people with significant clinical issues. And Amy's worked with the best of the best out there. And so we're going to bring her into the podcast to try to glean some knowledge from her about the nervous system, but particularly uh, looking at nutrition and gut health, which is her area of specialty. She also does a lot of work in hormone management, which we probably won't get into a ton today, but today is a lot about gut nutrition. So Amy, you want to introduce yourself and give the uh, listeners out there a little bit about your background and what's leading us to this discussion today. So goes back a long ways how I got into the gut interest, but initially just was an RN and practiced in a hospital. Now, looking back, I think, oh my word, how many things we didn't do with the gut back then, but started working with Doc probably 25 years ago. And we were attempting to work primarily with the brain, but this thing kept happening where we couldn't ignore that everything is connected. So we delved into the breathing and we learned a ton together on that. And we worked with clients and saw the incredible impact of integrating breathing into brain training. So functional nutrition for me brought in all the organ systems and forced me to learn how each of those different systems impact the overall digestive process. But all along, I was kind of looking at it through the brain lens. So it was kind of a fun journey of applying what I was learning into what we were already doing at Royer Neuroscience. Probably my greatest passion within the field is to try to simplify because it's so incredibly complex and it keeps getting more complex because now it's a really popular field of study. So the amount of information is just bursting. It's growing exponentially. And so I know I can't keep up with the mounds of information coming in. So it's more, I want to use my brain or my platform to simplify the information into things that we can apply in day-to-day life. Gut health has been uh, one of those things 
where Amy has talked about it over the years, but it wasn't until I really started to apply that with some clients. And I'm thinking one elite level pro client that I worked with for eight years at trying to adjust his brain and uh, trying to improve his brain. And he would have slight changes. And I mean, we tried everything. I mean, we looked at all the breathing, the heart rate, the biofeedback, the brain training. I mean, this guy was consistent. Part of some of his concerns was that he was uh, very obsessive. So I never had to worry about him not doing his training. He would do it all the time, but his brain just wouldn't move. And I remember Amy kept saying, hey, let's look at his gut. I'm like, well, this guy does everything. And sure enough, we looked at his gut. We did a, we call it a poop test, a stool sample and sent it out, looked at his microbiome. And we saw some irregularities in that. And we're like, I wonder what this means. And then Amy, through her experience, said, hey, let's, we're going to try him on these prebiotics, probiotics, I think is how that we started that. And I'm not joking, within days, almost hours, something that I had struggled with with this client for years literally transformed. And I knew that because I was looking at the EEG. I was looking at his brain constantly. It was like somebody gave him a brand new brain. And for the last four years, we've seen major differences in this person. And he'll tell you that it transformed his life. Well, that was the beginning of client after client that we've said, hey, we got to look at the gut. So, Aim, can you kind of explain why the gut is so important and how this relates to the brain and some things we should be thinking about? Yeah. So I think what I would do is maybe classify it, I'm going to say in two areas, and, and then maybe you branch off from there. But one area is just physiologically it's connected or anatomically it's connected. And that's through the what we call now the gut-brain access. But I believe it's primarily through the vagus nerve, which when I was in school, all we thought was that the brain tells the body what to do. But now we know that it's actually bidirectional and that there is afferent nerves and efferent nerves. So one leaving and one coming and there's a circle of communication. So that was exciting to find that out. And then I believe that they've actually found that there's more communication going from the gut to the brain than vice versa, which is kind of funny because it sort of stands everything up on its head. So, but it does also immediately bring more importance to gut health because you're like, hey, if this is talking to my brain and I'm trying to optimize my brain, then I've got to listen to my gut. So to me, that is super exciting. There's countless other ways that I could say that it's all connected, but I'd like to just just kind of stick to that gut-brain access way. But the other thing, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system through inflammation. So if you think about your gut track or your GI system as this insanely complex tube that runs through your body and allows exterior parts of the world to come inside of your body and be integrated into your body. And it's really quite a scary thought. And so when I think about the GI tract, I think about the immune system and how unbelievably important this immune system is. Otherwise, if you just got the smallest little germ going in your body, you're done. And so there's an army working all the time in our 
digestive tract that is protecting us from the outside world while being 100% exposed to the outside world all the time. So you have this alive army, but you also have the structures of a fortress that protect you, which we have through the lining of the GI tract, which is another like unbelievable miracle in and of itself. And it's got layers and layers to it. And it's got substances that we release at the right time that make it possible to digest like a piece of metal, but at the same time, not digest ourselves. And it's got the ability to sift through what to keep and what to let go. And it's just, when you start reading about it, it it just blows your mind what's happening all the time. But on the flip side of that is when we don't take care of it and when the fortress is vulnerable or the army is not prepared, then we have everything start to fall apart. And in the general language, we would call it leaky gut, which is some people hate it, especially in the medical field, because it's not quite particular enough because it just means it's leaking. But they had to make another word for it called gastrointestinal hyperpermeability. But we know that it just means that if you think of it in a defensive way or a military way, is there's a break in the in the barrier. And so as soon as you have that, then your body initiates the inflammation response in an effort to protect you. So if you think about the way we talk about being in orange status or whatever at the airport, this is exactly what happens inside of our body. We're at these different status levels of reaction and protection. Our body's trying to do it for us. But if we're not responding to that or we don't have an awareness of it, it can get pushed over to the edge and it can then become something that's literally detrimental to our health. So it's kind of a strange thing, but it would fall almost into the category of being autoimmune or where the reaction is so heightened that not only does it drain your system of its abilities to react to more and more things, but it's almost getting confused about what it's reacting to and can start to be detrimental to our overall health. So I might be getting ahead of myself here, but what I'm trying to say is it can start very simple, like just a small breach in the system, but it can move all the way into being a chronic illness where you're like, how can I literally address this chronic illness through my diet? And that's where I think we have so much to offer, but you have to be so diligent and so much of an advocate for yourself because the system is not there for that kind of helping. But whereas your client that we talked about doing so many things right, his was almost like people have this theory of the how many holes are in the roof. Like, do you just, if there's 30 holes, are you going to get any benefit by patching five of them? Well, he would be the kind of person who had patched like 29 and we came along and gave him that last patch. And it was like, whoa, that, you know, blew it away. But he was already doing so many things right. It was like the last thing that he needed to flip that. I think you've mentioned sometime like we're this thin membrane that kind of protects us is just the the difference between kind of life and death is that how thin 
this membrane is within the system that is trying to decide what's good and bad for us. And when you talk about autoimmune and those kind of things, it's like the system gets confused because it's fighting so much. Can you just take us anatomically? Like when we say the digestive system, I just think my stomach, right? Like uh, where I put food, but go from, can you just, and I, I, I love when you kind of describe it like, oh yeah, all these things are super important to working with the digestive system. So can you take us kind of through the different anatomical sections of this and why each one might be important to this whole process and maybe some things that we need to be aware of before we get into some of these other deeper things? Okay. That's a huge question. Huge. (laughs) So I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible, but you are starting your digestive process before you ever stick anything in your mouth because the very thought of eating begins to produce some of the enzymes that you need to start digesting. So it's a, it's a really sweet thought, but just taking a moment of being grateful for your food is something that has always happened throughout history. And in all different religions and all different cultures, they typically have some form of a pause before eating. And it's very functional. It allows Mm, you to begin to produce your saliva. So you put your food in your mouth and you chew, which when you chew, you create more surface area. When you create more surface area in the food, then there's more availability for the enzymes to do their work, breaking it down. So If you ever worked in the lab or science, you know that when you're trying to break something down, if you stir the dish, it will break down faster. If you heat it, it will break down faster. Things like that. Those are all starting in your mouth. And so you get the chewing, breaking it, making more surface area, then you get the enzymes working, and then you start sending it down your esophagus, which the swallow... What's a a recommended amount of chewing because I don't chew my, probably my food as much as I should. And I've been told that I need to chew more, but this makes a lot of scientific sense, right? Like if I chew it, I create more surface area, which then I think is going to help us as we go through this. So yeah, like, what are we talking about? Well, people do say 50 to 100 chews, which <laughs> I don't actually count while I'm doing it, but you can get a head start by cutting your food smaller. Because I've seen some people take some very large bites and I think to myself, that's going to take a lot of chewing to get that to break down. So anyway, and you got to think about things from history are so interesting because that's where people did it right is more further back in time. The way we eat nowadays is a setup for disaster because we Mm. we eat on the run, we smash food in our mouth, we do a lot of handheld food because then we don't Mm. even have to cut it. We just smash it in. And um, so it gets kind of it gets kind of crazy. But yes, cutting your food smaller is really helpful. And then chewing longer. And then it's amazing what you do with the swallow mechanism. Because if you you should swallow small amounts and, and there's even a, a term for what a, what that is that you swallow, then the digestive system gets going where it's me- muscular. And it starts moving it down your esophagus. And I think it takes seven seconds to go from the swallow down to the um, sphincter that leads into the stomach. And then that is amazing because that lets in just like that one little bit of food and then it shuts the door behind it because 
the stomach is extremely acidic and you want acid in your stomach. So in our culture, we say, oh, I have acid stomach. Like I need to go take a Tums because I have this acid stomach. Well, it's kind of the worst thing you can do. It will soothe your throat, but it will decrease the acidity of the stomach. And you need the acid to be breaking down that food in the stomach. So we have a problem in our medical system because one of the top given drugs is a proton pump inhibitor, which slows down the production of the hydrochloric acid that we need. Hmm. And the advertisement is right. It brings you instant relief to your heartburn. But now the stomach is not as acidic. The food is not going to get broke down as it should, broken down as it should within the stomach. So now you're going to pass it into the small intestine and it's in a bigger form than we want it to be in because it Mm -hmm. did not get broken down while in the stomach. But now it's gotten passed on to the next form of digestion and it's too large of a molecule. So that is the beginning of the inflammation response because now that small intestine is basic in nature. It's not acidic. So you literally go from the stomach being so acidic that it, I'm not kidding you, it can digest metal. It can digest, like there's these crazy stories of people who ate an airplane or something just to prove it. But you can, and also if you watch Breaking Bad, you know that hydrochloric acid will digest anything. So, (laughs) so anyway, you're supposed to digest with the hydrochloric acid, break this stuff all down into these perfect little pieces and then send them into the small intestine, which is very basic. So you literally switch gears from being acidic to basic just by walking, going through that door, that sphincter. And then the small intestine is long, like 22 to 28 feet long inside of you. And the surface area is ridiculous because it is like a shag carpet of little, Mm. these little villi that that's where the absorption of the good stuff happens. And it is, it's like a, it's like a, a miracle. It's amazing what happens in there. That's where you're like absorbing the things that you need out of that food before you pass it on into the large intestine. And in the large intestine then is where this massive amount of your microbiome lives. And Mm -hmm. in there, they take the remaining things that are good for them. And then they, the large intestine then simply creates, I'm just going to use poop in this podcast, creates poop out of the leftovers. (laughs) And so in a perfect world, the microbiota gets everything that it needs while passing, while this food is passing its last way through the large intestine. And then that beautiful colon just makes a nice formed poop. And we wake up in the morning and get rid of that because if it was to stay in there, it's not going to be good for us because it's just full of waste. And if you leave it in there, it's going to be more toxic to your system and, and create gastric or not gastric, but like cramping and unhealthy things by staying around in there. So we want to get that moving out on a daily basis. And that's it from start to finish. Wow. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, it is amazing. 
We're keeping it in the family today because I'm really excited to have my daughter, Kate, uh, with us today, Dr. Weringa. She's going to be connecting to us internationally. So it sounds like Kate is on a phone call and I'm on a phone call. It's because we are and we're talking across the Atlantic. So Kate, you're joining us from the Netherlands. Can you give us a little bit of your background and what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so hello, McCarthy Yarson. I am currently working in a lab at Utrecht University. I'm a postdoc. So my project right now is more focused on cancer biology, which is really what we're going to be talking about today. But I, yeah, I've always been very interested in cellular biology. And so that led me to my PhD, which I finished up in 2021, where I studied the effects of omega-3 fatty acids on certain types of immune cells. Then I studied how they influence levels of inflammation. And this was working in a lab that was really focused on how these omega-3 fatty acids could play an anti-inflammatory role in in autoimmune disease. We're very interested in uh, managing the autonomic nervous system way upstream and looking at it getting out of balance either in too much parasympathetic or too much sympathetic, which is when the, the nervous system is overactivated. And if that's like a 3,000-foot view, what we're doing, you are down at the millimeter view of what's literally happening in the cells that start the whole inflammatory process, which you can have somebody that psychologically thinks we're going well, environmentally things are going well, but they're stuck in sympathetic because they're inflamed. There's some type of inflammatory process. So can you explain a little bit like what's happening cellularly and what is an essential fatty acid? We've all heard of fat, right? So it's one of the main macronutrients that's in the food that we eat. And fat can be broken down into so many different subcategories. So probably listeners have heard of like saturated fatty acids, unsaturated fatty acids. And when we talk about essential fatty acids, these are fats that we need to take in through our diet because our body can't make them on our own. So our cells, actually every cell in your body has a membrane around it, so like a wall, and that's made up of fatty acids. And fatty acids play a super important role both in like making that physical barrier around each individual cell, but they also have all sorts of other jobs that they do in the cell. They can act as like signaling molecules. They can get broken down into smaller, smaller metabolites that can trigger different responses. But yeah, every cell is fat, and most of those fats we can make on our own. But there's a few, there's a class that we can't make on our own, and those are the essential fatty acids that you mentioned. So those we have to take in through our diet. And two, the two things that we always hear about from the essential fatty acids are the omega-6 and the omega-3 fatty acids. So these ones are really good to, I guess, define Okay, so the difference between these is where the bonds are. This gets really technical, especially if you don't have like a picture in front of you. But basically, you can picture a a fatty acid as like this long, squiggly tail of carbons and hydrogen. Okay. And in that tail, you have sometimes like a very straight tail. Those are saturated fats. And then you have certain fats that have more of like a squiggly tail, kind of like a zigzag, because they have different types of bonds in them. And they have more of these, what we call double bonds. 
These are the unsaturated fats. And the essential fatty acids are a type of unsaturated fatty acid that our body just doesn't have like the enzyme or the tool to put a double bond in a specific position in the pail, which is why you have to eat it. Hmm. Does that make sense? No, it makes complete sense. Uh, Okay. So why Um, is the difference between a six and a three? So that just has to do with where you find that bond that I was talking about. So three just means that the double bond is three carbons from the end of the long tail. Six just means the double bond is six carbons from the end of the long tail. So okay, uh, just based on where you see those bonds showing up. Yeah. And so because it's essential fatty acids, the omega-6s and the omega-3s, they're going to come through what we eat, right? Yep, because we can't make those. Like so our body doesn't plant, have the enzyme to put that bond in that specific position. And then animals eat those plants. And then we eat the plants and the animals. And so that's how we get those fatty acids into our diet. We can't make them, or into our body. We can't make them ourselves. Okay, so can you explain to the listeners and also to me again, what's important about the omega-3 ones that we're taking in in our diet? And maybe contrast that to the mega sixes. Yeah, sure. So, all the cells in our body have both these omega three and omega six fatty acids. However, in the U.S. especially, and in the Western diet, the types of foods we eat have way more of the omega sixes in them compared to the omega three. And so then what what you see happening is when you look at the types of fat that are showing up in our cells, you see more of the omega-6s. Because like I said, the only way you're getting the omega-6s and omega-3s into into your cells is through your diet. So if you're eating a lot of omega-6s, you have a lot more omega-6s in your cells. And I should clarify that omega-6s aren't bad to say. Like a lot of times in that omega-3 literature, sort of the omega-6s become the bad guy. They serve a lot of really good purposes. But the bigger issue is that we have just such a high amount of omega-6s compared to omega-3s in our diet. And so when I say they act as the bad guys, this is going back to what we know about essential fatty acids and inflammation. So when those omega-6 fatty acids in the cell membrane get broken down and metabolized, they can get turned into all sorts of these different smaller molecules that have inflammatory properties. Mm. So maybe, like for example, if you have a fever, one of the metabolites that gets broken down from omega-6 fatty acids is responsible for like helping generate that, that heat and that inflammatory response that you see with a fever. And so... That being said, if your cells are much richer in these omega-6 fatty acids, it's possible that you're generating more of these inflammatory molecules than what you really should be. So there's some nice papers that have shown that like our hunter-gatherer diet had a much more even split of omega-6 to omega-3 if you compare like the types of foods that people ate way, way, way back. Whereas now, we're eating stuff that's much more enriched in omega-6s. And so we're producing more of these inflammatory mediators than what our ancestors way back would have been. 
because they didn't have as many omega-6s incorporated into their cells. So that's so, kind of the underlying principle of why why adding more omega-3s could have this, this anti-inflammatory effect. Okay. So for the listener out there, inflammation, what might that be like precursor to in general? If I'm looking to like be a peak performer or maybe I have somebody or myself that has a clinical thing going on, how how does inflammation versus anti-inflammation, how does that impact these different diseases and things? So when we talk about inflammation, we often talk about like these five pillars of inflammation. So you have pain, peak, loss of function, swelling, and redness. Of course, if you're inflamed in a joint, for example, you're going to have more pain in that joint. I, I think like the extreme, extreme area we think of when we think of inflammation, especially inflammation that's really gotten out of control would be like autoimmune diseases or autoinflammatory disorders and diseases where you have, for example, like a rheumatoid arthritis where there's so much inflammation in that joint that it leaves the function, it's swollen, it's painful. But when I think more about like what role does inflammation play in peak performance, yeah, that's where it's like if you go out and you I don't know, do a whole bunch of 400 repeats and you're kind of sore the next day, but the following day your body's able to resolve that inflammation, you're going to be able to like progress more and progress more quickly than someone who takes several, several days to recover from that because their inflammation was so high following that tough workout. So that's, that's kind of how I would think of it in terms of peak performance. And then, yeah, I, I don't know, do you want... No, I, I, it sounds like it's it's more of a like inflammation affects all of us in some way, like or it can yeah. from from the peak performer to somebody like with cardiovascular disease, which could be related to to inflammation or lupus, yeah. or mm-hmm. I would assume almost every disease we experience is worsened by inflammation, yeah. and I've heard. Some researchers talk about like neuroinflammation where the brain is actually inflamed Mm -hmm. and that that can be a contributor to a lot of the different psychiatric illnesses that we talk about is that it's an inflammatory process. I know particularly in concussion or or, uh, traumatic brain injury that there's Mm -hmm. a, a, a cascade of inflammation that when you're trying to recover for something like that, it doesn't sound like you want to have an overabundance of mega-6 in the system because it's going to be more problematic to recovery. Anybody that wants to function at a high level really needs to be taking into consideration what's going on at the cellular level with the distribution of a mega-6 and a mega-3. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, when I think about the omega-3 and omega-6 essential fatty acids, when you take these in, they're, they're going everywhere in your body. So there are some really nice studies that show like correlations between, for example, your red blood cell levels of omega-6 or omega-3 fatty acids and tissue levels. So like your if your red blood cell levels go up, you also see an increase in your omega-3 levels in 
the liver and the kidneys and the muscle. So it's going everywhere. So it's like your whole body is getting more of these omega-3 fatty acids. Like you literally are what you eat, right? So you're yes. eating the omega-3 fatty acids. They're getting incorporated into your body. And so you then have more of those. And if those have these like anti-inflammatory properties, then it's endowing all these different tissues with like this extra tool to fight against inflammation. Which, yeah, it's with you're right. Like, but I think a lot of the direction things are going, especially with a lot of these chronic diseases, is their basis is inflammation, kind of out of control inflammation. And that's showing up in different tissues, right? If you have like some sort of chronic kidney disease, you have creative inflammation in your kidney. If you have achy joints, inflammation in the joints. Cardiovascular disease, inflammation in the vessels. And so if you're able to kind of give the cells in those areas these extra tools, these extra things to fight against the inflammation, like, I mean, that's a win-win, I think. <laughs> now, you're, you're looking in your research, at, at least at your doctoral research, you were looking at in relation to lupus omega-3, mm-hmm. right? Without getting too technical, can you kind of explain to us what, what was going on there? That's not like just taking one omega-3 a day or something, right? It was, what were you looking at there? Yeah, yeah, good. that's a good question. So, yeah, so I'll talk more about the kind of overarching project our lab was doing. The, yeah, that better answers your question. So our lab was interested in understanding how omega-3 fatty acids could slow down um, the development and progression of lupus. And so we had these mice that they will develop lupus spontaneously. Lupus is, a, is an autoimmune disease that's very common and not very common, but it's most prevalent in women of childbearing age. So women, yeah, over, over 20 or so. And it's really a nasty disease. I mean, it's systemic autoimmune disease. So it influences several, several organs. And basically your body, your body's immune system sort of fights against itself. So you start producing antibodies, which normally we want to produce antibodies against like bad foreign substances like bacteria. But in the case of lupus, the body gets confused and starts producing all these antibodies against your own tissues. And then your immune system, super powerful, great for eradicating infections, not so great when it's turned on your own tissues. So mm. wow. with lupus have the end stage if it's untreated with lupus is kidney failure because their body attacks the kidneys. Mm. But you also see things showing up. For example, they have sometimes lung complications. Often they have skin complications. So yeah, it's an acid disease. Anyway, also lupus is treated with super strong anti-inflammatories and uh, corticosteroids, which, yeah, my PhD supervisor used to describe corticosteroids as a poison chalice, which I think is maybe a dramatic, but probably accurately to describe it because they, they give relief, but probably some listeners know like Years and years and years on corticosteroids is also not great because both have their own set of side effects. And so sort of the basis of the research in our lab and the justification for why I even look at this is we wanted to find a dietary intervention mm-hmm. that would reduce the symptoms of, of lupus, ideally then requiring less of this super powerful anti-inflammatory steroids. And so we took these mice and we fed them diets that either had a control, either a control diet 
or diets that had the equivalent of taking two grams of DHA per day, which DHA is one of those omega-3 essential fatty acids, or five grams of DHA per day. And so to put those doses in context, five grams is a lot of DHA. I can explain a little later like how many pills that would be. But five grams is actually what's considered safe by the the European equivalent of FDA. They say five grams is safe. And the only real side effects you have if you go, I mean, okay, there, you don't want to go like high, high above that because there can be, you don't ever want to have too much of one thing, I suppose. But yeah, five grams is considered safe. And then we also had a two gram dose, which we considered like our actually feasible <laughs> if you're just a normal person, like taking supplements that aren't maybe uh, uh, yeah. prescription. But, and so what we thought is that when we, gave these animals an, an environmental trigger to induce lupus. The animals that were fed this five grams a day dose, they had almost, in the period we looked at, they had almost no development of the disease. Whereas wow. the animals that were control diet, yeah, their kidneys were horrible. They were full of these autoantibodies. And if you look at, for example, gene expression or levels of inflammatory proteins in their blood plasma, both are super high. So, yeah, the DHA reduced or almost completely eliminated like the end-stage lupus symptoms, like the the kidney response. We did see some of those upstream responses, like the, the antibodies and things like that. So it's not like it's 100% going to be able to block it. I mean, that's yeah why we have modern medicine as well. I think it does frame the context for our listener out there that might not have lupus, okay, might not have a particular chronic illness, but when we look at how we can take this omega-3 in, in a way, not at a much different dosing than maybe we knew 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that it's working to keep the system out of inflamed response. And Well, maybe I'm not inflamed. Well, we're thinking about inflammation all the time when we mention the word recovery. Okay, so if I've got... Yeah. If I've got an athlete out there like, well, I don't have lupus. Why am I listening to this podcast? Well, you're dealing every single day with recovery. All of us, when you have disruption in your sleep, your system is not recovering correctly. Okay, When you have disruption in your focus, it's probably because you didn't recover correctly. If we're predisposed to anxiety, stress, you, you're obsessing, the system is showing us that it's more inflamed or more sympathetic. Now, again, that could be psychological, could be environmental, but we're asking the listeners to look internally at the cellular level to think, are my cells out of balance in the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which is then going to predispose me to just easily tilt right into inflammation and poor recovery. So we kind of are building, it's kind of like the mortar between the bricks and how strong that mortar is. And so if we can look at that and fix it, like you said, it's not a one-stop shop, but it's really important to how I'm predisposed. And these are only going to happen via diet. I'm not going to make these things internally. Can you explain like, we talk about the ratio of a six to three. Uh, can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit? 
what's good, what's bad, and maybe like why different parts of the world actually have different ratios. Like, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, so maybe listeners have heard of this omega-3 index. So this is simply the measure of what percent of your red blood cell membranes are omega-3 fatty acids. And what they do is they just take a tiny drop of your blood from your finger and they can pull out the blood, the red blood cell membrane. So in that blood, there's all these tons of red blood cells in there. Both have a cell membrane like I talked about earlier. And they look at that cell membrane and they can say what percent of that cell membrane is omega-3 fatty acids. So if you have a whole bunch of sixes coming in and just a few threes, that enzyme just like only feeds the sixes and just pushes all the sixes into, into the cell membrane. But if you can shift that balance of how much sixes and threes you take in, then that enzyme's going to be more able to select sixes and threes and sixes and threes and put those into the membrane. So that's a big part of it. It's because these, these fatty acids share the same pathway to get into the cell and then to get used by the cell. If you shift the balance of what you're putting into your body, you shift the balance of what's inside of the body. And so, yeah, I think looking at how different countries vary is a really cool way to see how that diet of that country literally shows up inside of the person, right? Yeah, and then the downstream uh, effects on illness and inflammatory disease and that kind of stuff can, a big component can be these so you mentioned like some of these countries like Japan, Greenland, where they're eating a lot of fish, index up around 8 to 10%. And here in the U.S., we'll see an index of 3%, 2%. Yeah, low. It's- yeah, I mean, I think it's probably hard to like make regularly strong comparison from one country to country on the, like to say the omega-3 index is the thing doing it, right? Because there's so yeah. many other factors that differ from country to country. But I will say like the thing that kicked off the whole omega-3 field was this observational study in this population in Greenland where they saw that these people that eat this super omega-3 rich diet had really low levels of thrombosis, I think. So yeah, cardiovascular disease. And that really started the whole omega-3 field with this odd finding of like, wow, these people that eat all these fish, they are much healthier. They have much better like heart health. There are several studies where they do look at different, uh, yeah, even like brain brain health specific things like anxiety or depression. And they they have measured omega-3 indices with people that have higher anxiety or higher levels of depression. And there they do see some differences. Omega Corn has some really nice blog articles, actually. So I'm going to point to them because I think they, in those blogs, they also cite a lot of their important references, things like that. But they have some really nice blogs looking at the connection between omega 3s and depression, the connection between omega 3s and anxiety. And yeah, there is definitely some link there between higher omega 3 index and, in general, less of some of these diseases that may have some diseases or disorders that may have some inflammatory basis. Yes. Great. Well, as we finish up, just I know this is a really deep dive for our listeners, but it's a very important dive to think about 
the what we're taking in. Any last things, Kate, that you would leave our listeners in relation to this uh, discussion? Maybe a starting point or just kind of a take home that just the average person out there never heard this stuff before and they're trying to build their inner inner armor. What might be a good starting point for them? Yeah, I think that the best starting point is figuring out what your omega-3 index is. And we talked about omega quant, that's the source in our armor users. There's probably other things out there, but it's, I mean, like a lot of things in our armor does, like it's being more aware of where your body is. It's another level of biofeedback. So it's the more, the biofeedback you do with the breathing and the EEG training, et cetera, is like real time. And you can see what's, what's happening, what's changing. Whereas this, yeah, it takes your cells a while to remodel their membrane, but why not get an idea of where they are right now so you can know how you can make it better. So when I've done these omega quant tests, I like to do one and then do another one six months later and see, okay, I made a few changes. Did it actually have an effect? And yeah, depending on how aggressively you go after it, you probably will see an effect. So it's just good to get a baseline, get an idea of where you're actually at and then figure out what meaningful things to do change. That's awesome. And we've learned today just how those may have a downstream effect in a lot of other areas. So we're super, super excited to have this level of uh, expertise on the podcast and for teaching us so much about uh, omega-3s and encourage our listeners to look forward to, to learning more about that. But thanks, Dr. Weringa. Kate, uh, for being with us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge on this topic. And uh, for our listeners, you know, encourage you to get to uh, Inner Armor or Royer Neuroscience. Royer Neuroscience may do uh, a few more of these deeper dives with you if you'd like to uh, learn more about that. Well, this was fantastic. As we deepen our understanding of the brain and body connection, That really opens the doors to new understandings of your own health and your own potential. And Inner Armor is committed to helping everyone to reach their potential and to be the best that they can be. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.